Gracious God, now that we get that out of the way, then we, we sit on your word and we know that you are present with us in the midst of everything that goes on. And so now we want to focus in on what it means for you to be our friend. Because we know you are, but are we a friend to you? Speak to the words that I have to say to you today for all of us. And may you come and bring those words to us and may they be something that grows inside of us and in, our, in your presence. So pour into us now and pour into these words. May they be acceptable and pleasing to you. The people of God said together, Amen. So Max starts his friend chapter talking about having a sketch of Jesus laughing. This is actually a famous sketch. 1970s, way before people were thinking about Jesus laughing, this uh, a person from Canada did this sketch. His head is back. His mouth is open. He isn't just grinning. He isn't just chuckling. He's roaring, laughing. He's laughing so hard, he's having trouble catching his breath. Keep going. There's, two, there's more slides of that. Where'd they go? You don't have them? Oh, no. I had Jesus' yearbook picture up there. I'm, that's, a, that's a problem. It was given to him, he said, by an Episcopal priest who carries cigars in his pocket and actually collects portraits of Jesus smiling. And the priest said he gives them to anyone who might be inclined to take God too seriously. Well, maybe you're like me and Max and have trouble easily envisioning a smiling God. There he is. That's Jesus' yearbook photo. Can't you tell the one on the right? That looks just like a yearbook photo. I don't know who did that, but I'm sorry, the artist. But How many times do you see Jesus and think about him smiling in that way? We hear about God weeping in the scripture and being angry, that God is mighty and powerful, that God is love. But smiling Jesus, smiling God, where do we find in scripture that? Is that God with a wry smile as God pulls a fast one on Moses as the burning bush speaks to him unexpectedly? Is God laughing as Jonah gets thrown on the beach smelling like fish guts, thinking he was going to get away? Does Jesus smile when the boy tells him that he is willing to share his lunch with 5,000 people and the disciples ask, how is that going to help? And all those pictures of Jesus with children Do we really think that he looks somber and sullen? No. Jesus must have been a people person. The kind of person people wanted to be near. The type who was always invited to the party. For example, the wedding at Cana. We talk about that as the place where Jesus turned water into wine. But Max asks us to consider, why did he get invited in the first place? John 2.2 tells us that the answer is that Jesus and his followers were also invited to the wedding. When the bride and groom are putting together their list of who, who's, who's who to come to the wedding, Jesus was on it. And so were his followers. Jesus wasn't invited because he was a celebrity, because he wasn't even known yet. It was not for his miracles. He hadn't done any until he changes the water into wine. I guess they just liked him. It seems significant that common people in Cana wanted him to be around. And Max says that is noteworthy, that the Almighty didn't act high and mighty. The Holy One wasn't holier than thou. He could have been, though. He could have showed off, but instead purpose was to show up. 
He wanted to be an ordinary Joe. Or in this case, an ordinary Jesus. Remember, his name was the most common name in that part of Israel. Even had a special meaning for this Jesus. He didn't need to study, but he went to synagogue. He didn't need to work, but he became a carpenter anyways. Soon upon his shoulders would rest the challenge of redeeming all of creation, but he still took time to take his mother and be with his mother at this wedding in Galilee. You don't get the impression his head was swelled by what he could do. That no one ever said, who do you think made you God? Like we might say to each other. But if they did, wouldn't the irony be of making him laugh inside about that? People didn't groan when he entered the room. He called them by name. He listened to their stories. He answered their questions. He visited their sick. He fished with fishermen and went to rowdy parties where they questioned who he hung out with. People were just drawn to Jesus. Thousands came to hear him. Hundreds chose to follow him. And a handful would call him their friend. And he told them and us what he came to do. In John 10.10, he says, I come to give life with joy and abundance. Jesus was happy. He just wants us to be the same. We heard last week that when the angels announced his birth, that it was good news of great joy. Great joy. The joy has been at the center of our community's life for a while now. Has joy become more than a dishwashing liquid? Is there joy that oozes out of us in the form of our life that lives for Jesus so that everyone is covered in that joy? And where do we get the idea that being a good Christian means you can't have any fun or you must be stoic and solemn? I mean, going back to the wedding, why did Jesus go? If he says it's not his time for miracles like he tells his mom, then why? Well, Max goes so far as to say that Jesus went to the wedding for, hold on to this, it's going to be very important, he went to the wedding for fun. He just went to have fun. It's been a tough season for Jesus. I mean, nothing really big. Just this wedding happened after he had just spent 40 days in the desert being tempted by the devil. No food or water. Then he came back to break in, as Max calls them, his greenhorn Galilean disciples. He has a job change. He left his mother, left his home. Nothing big. His life had been one change after another. He just needed a break. You ever feel like that? Like you just need a break from the pressures and the trials of life and the things that hold you down? Some of you have been through a lot of changes lately. You need to have fun. You need to find fun again. Fun is important. His purpose is not to turn water into wine by going to the wedding. He was there to do a favor for a friend who invited him. He wasn't there to show his power. They had no clue what he could do. He wasn't there to do party tricks for them. Jesus went to the wedding because he liked people. He liked food. He liked having fun. 
Now, I know it's hard for some of us to have fun. I am guilty of that. When some, someone asks me, what do you do for fun? I have to think about some of the things that I offer. I like to do research. I like to do, you know, watch movies and watch all the things behind the scenes, like all those hours of extras. I watch every single one of them. Every one of them. Is that really fun? I don't know. It's hard sometimes to say, what, what is fun? What does it mean to have fun? Remember, Jesus was accused of eating too much, drinking too much, hanging out with the wrong people. When's the last time that you've been accused of having too much fun? When's the last time someone came and said, I'm, that's it, you are having, Vicki, you are having too much fun, and that's ridiculous. If that was the thing said about us, huh? It's not usually the thing, is it? And Mac leaves with a question. He asks us this question. What sort of portrait of Jesus hangs on the walls of your mind? What does he look like? Is he sad? Is he somber? Is he angry? Or is he laughing? Living life with joy and abundance. Jesus is our friend. And even more importantly, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Sinners like the one of the disciples, a tax collector named Matthew. Caesar permitted that these Jewish tax collectors tax almost anything. Your boat, your fish in the boat, your nets, your house, your crops, your animals, anything. And they would give Rome the money they expected and they would keep the profit for themselves. And Matthew, we are told, was a public tax collector. That means he was actually hired by a private collector to do his dirty work. He was the lowest of the low of the tax collectors. And his given name was Levi. Say Levi. I want to make sure at the time change you're still awake. It's a priestly name. Do you think his parents maybe thought he might be a priest? Because if so, they were sorely disappointed with how he turned out in life. What a loser. What a failure. The blackest of black sheep in his family. Shunned, isolated, never invited to anything. If the coronavirus is bad, it is nothing on Matthew. Everybody kept their distance from him. From a tax collector. A traitor to his own people. Everybody but his new friend, Jesus. Jesus actually seeks out Matthew. We hear in Matthew 9, 9, Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. And then we're told in Luke 5, 29, that Levi gave a big dinner for Jesus at his house. And many tax collectors and other people were eating there too. What do you think led to that party? Did he tell all his fellow tax collectors that he was calling it quits as a collector? Did he tell them about his new friend, Jesus? Or did he, this come all come out of the way he started acting after he met his BFF? That's best friend forever for some of you text challenged out there. Did Jesus and he, and he plan this party together? It's actually what you call in circles today when you have parties in your neighborhood and invite neighbors to be able to come together for the purpose of getting to know Jesus. They call it a Matthew party. Made of misfits and every kind of person you can imagine was this party that Matthew held. You know those people. They are the ones we don't want to give the time of day. 
They're too dirty, too undeserving of Jesus because of their lifestyle choices and decisions. It's probably a real culture shock for even the disciples like Peter, James, and John to be mixing with this kind of sort. And then as usually happens, the good church people come in to see what this party is all about. Luke 5.30 The Pharisees and the men who taught the law for the Pharisees began to complain to Jesus' followers. Not Jesus. Not that bold. They went to his followers. And they said, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now talk about people who apparently don't know how to smile. The Pharisees are the poster children for that. They are definitely not living their lives with joy and abundance. And before we come down too hard on them, we need to remember the church is always one step away from being the Pharisees. Amen? You don't seem to believe that, but we are. We are always one step away from being the Pharisees. We are always one step away from deciding who is in and who is out based upon what we believe, what our rules are, personally and communally. Can someone get those kids to stop running around here? Why are those folks so loud? Shh! That's my pew. The church is always one step away from being the Pharisees. Matthew doesn't know whether to get mad or get out, Max says. But before he has time to choose, Jesus intervenes, explaining that Matthew is right where he needs to be. He says this, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. To sin just simply means it's an archery term in the Bible. It means to miss the mark, to miss the bullseye. And repent simply means to turn around, metanoia. To turn around and go in a different direction than the one you're headed. Jesus, the friend of sinners, is no friend to the Pharisees, even though he is a Pharisee. They don't need him. The Pharisees considered themselves spiritually healthy and righteous They were not teachable, and they had no self-awareness. And people who have those two traits have no need for Jesus. If you have it all together, then Jesus is not for you. You don't need Jesus. Only those of us who can admit the fact is that we don't have it all together. Because then he can lead us. But think about while the Pharisees are coming down on Jesus at this party, whose party is he attending? Do they throw a party for him? No. It's Matthew and his friends. They made room for Jesus, the outcasts, the lost. And Max hits something very hard we have to consider. As we go forward as a denomination, an annual conference, a church community, and as Christians, what do you do with your Levi? Who is your Levi? Well, Max says, your Levi is the person with whom you fundamentally disagree. You fundamentally disagree. You follow different value systems. You embrace different philosophies. You adhere different codes of behavior, dress, and faith. And how how does God want you to respond to the Levi's of the world? Ignore them? Share a meal with them? 
Leave the room when they enter. Ask them to leave so you can stay. Discuss our differences. Dismiss our differences. Or maybe the best answer is found in Romans 15:7 when it warns us, accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now, obviously, I didn't choose this book in light of what lies ahead for us as the United Methodist Church in our dialogue and discussions and decisions at General Conference at the beginning of May. But God's timing is amazing, and I hope I remember these words from Max when the time is closer and I go back and read this chapter again. Because Max says this passage in Romans summarizes a 30-verse appeal to the Roman church for unity. And Paul begins and ends it with the same verse, the same word, accept. And this verb means more than tolerate or coexist. It means to welcome into one's fellowship and heart. It's a word that implies the warmth and kindness of genuine love. Filio, like Philadelphia. Love of friend. Paul uses this verb when he urges Philemon to welcome the slave Anonymous the way he would welcome Paul himself. Jesus uses it to describe how he receive us in John 14.3. How does Jesus receive us? Lost as Levi. You and I were once lost. Perhaps we still are lost. Still trying to find him. To sort through it all. But it was the Jesus, friend of sinners, who came to us while we were yet sinners, and that proved God's love towards us. Amen? It's the words we say. It's one of our ritual words. John 1.14 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Not just grace, but truth. Not just truth, but grace as well. But we seem to harbor on one or the other, but not both. Some of us see grace as the most important, and some of us see truth as the most important. But one cannot exist without the other in reality. And Max tells us that grace told the adulterous woman in John 8:11, "I do not condemn you." And truth told her, "Go and sin no more." There's the whole story of Zacchaeus that Max talks about in one of the chapters. Grace invites him to come down and find a place at Jesus' table of friends. The truth he found moves him so much he sells half of what he owns and makes restoration to everybody else that he has offended. The truth is that grace washed the feet of the disciples who didn't deserve it. And the truth came to them and told them, do as I have done to you. Grace invited Peter to climb out of the boat, walk on the water, but truth scolded him for his lack of faith. That would happen several times to Peter, including when he denied Jesus three times. That was the truth. And yet grace came to him and forgave him three times. Jesus was gracious enough to meet Nicodemus at night, and truth told him unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3, 5. You see, Jesus shared truth, but graciously. And Jesus offered grace but truthfully. And Max finishes with this, grace and truth, that acceptance seeks to offer both. 
Jesus found a way to accept the Matthews and the Zacchaeuses of the world. And Jesus, friend of sinner, wants to do the same thing through us for other people. It's the whoever we find in John 3.16. Whoever believes in Him. Whoever enrolls the welcome mat of heaven to humanity. Whoever invites the world to God. Jesus could have narrowly narrowed the scope, changing whoever to whatever. Whatever Jew believes. Whatever woman follows me. But the pronoun he uses has no qualifiers and is indefinitely open. Whoever means whoever. That's the kind of friend that Jesus was to them and all of us. He was truly then and is truly still the friend of sinners most of all. Why? Because sinners need him more than anybody else. The broken, people who are hurting, look to him more than anything else. If your life is put together and things are going well and you think you got it all figured out, you don't need Jesus. you got your own thing going on. But when life is falling apart, when divorce happens, when illness comes to your house, when death plagues you, when all the things in life just fall apart, Jesus becomes really real. And he comes alongside of you as a friend. So as we continue to seek him as our friend, are we being that same kind of friend to other people? When we sing this song, what a friend do we have in Jesus? Do we also relate that to how we treat others? Do they find in us a friend like Jesus? Do we represent him in all that we say and do? Do we accept those around us, even those we differ with? Do we love unconditionally? Let's gather together and stand and sing what a friend we have in Jesus, number 526. If you feel led to come to these rails this morning for something you want to give up, for something that you want to be able to say, Jesus, I really need your friendship now, we welcome you to come and be a part of that, to offer up your prayers and anything else that's going on in your life that you just need to let go of today. Let it go here. Let it go to God. Let us stand and sing.
Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. He is our friend. He is a friend to those of us who are sinners, who are broken and in need of mending. May we take that friend out into the world to those who are broken as well. And may he be a friend to them because we are a friend to them. Amen. Mm-hmm.